Well, good morning. How are you today? Good. It's so good to see you. My name is Josh, and I'm the lead pastor of the people called First Baptist Church Louisville. And this morning, I have a special guest with me this morning. I would like to invite Dr. David Hardage to the stage. I can tell you all kinds of um, accolades and things about uh, David. He served as the executive director of Texas Baptist for many years. He is currently serving as church relations with the TBM. Um, but most of all, I want to share with you that David is a man of character and integrity. And over the last several years, he has been a friend to me and an encouragement when I deeply needed it. And so I asked him to come today and to pray a prayer of blessing over our congregation, over our church, over my pastorate, and um, just to uh, celebrate with us. Pastor David, or Dr. David, we don't have a mic. You can use that one, yes. All right. Hey, I'm honored to be here. So grateful. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the day. This is your day. This is your house. These are your people. I thank you that we've been able to gather together, celebrate Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And I just pause today to pray for the pastor. Thank you for him. Thank you for his friendship. Thank you for his leadership. And I pray, God, that you would just use him. In such a powerful way. I pray for this church. As it's placed right here in this community, Father, I pray that the light of Jesus Christ would shine more brightly from this place than it ever has. I just pray that you would be at work here. And I ask your blessings on this pastor, his family, this church. We believe that the best days are yet to come. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you guys show your appreciation for Dr. Hardage? And... Uh, coffee. Coffee is a big part of our culture and uh, sort of the way that we exist and live, especially in the King household. I'm curious about uh, who's here in the room this morning. By show of hands, how many of you are self-described coffee snobs? Anybody's coffee snobs? Okay, there's a few of you. I see those. I was expecting BJ. How many of you are like McDonald's or gas station is good enough? It's just fine. All right. I don't disagree with you. I don't. How many of you are like, I couldn't care less. Just give me coffee. Anybody? All right. How many of you are coffee is bitter water for bitter people? I've heard that before. In our house, we love Cuban coffee. It is a big part of our mornings, especially Cafe Bustelo and cooking it with a percolator and, uh, and uh, enjoying that every morning. It's not unusual in our household, extended family, to give gifts uh, evolving around coffee, particularly, like I said, with Cafe Bustelo and Cuban coffee. It's just so much a part of the King household and our extended family. It reminds me of a time when Haddon, uh, my oldest son, was was much younger and we were I was it was in the morning I was drinking coffee and he was sitting on my lap I don't remember what he was doing coloring or something along those lines I was reading my bible drinking my coffee and he was sitting there and he looked at me and he asked if he could take a drink of the coffee he had never taken a drink of coffee before and and so I looked at him like any compassionate father would and I said go ahead just like that 
Now, this was still a very warm cup of very strong Cuban coffee, which is essentially an espresso. And as he grabbed that cup and then took a drink of that coffee, you could tell his face immediately contorted. He turned bright red and he stared at me like I had betrayed him, keeping the coffee in his mouth. And I looked at him and I said, look, if you don't like it, you can spit it out, which he did spit all of that coffee right back into my cup. (laughs) He did. I drank the rest of that cup. We don't waste Cuban coffee in my family. It's my kid. It's fine. It reminds me, and we all know situations in which we will do something or we will put our children in situations that will stretch them, teach them, or even test them out. Not out of malice, but out of love and out of compassion. We all know that if you encourage your son or your grandson to ask that girl out, it might end up in heartbreak, but it is good for him to learn in that way. Merging on the I-35 is something that every new driver has to learn to do, even though it scares all of us, regardless of our experience with driving. Running one more mile hurts physically, but that is the sort of sacrifice that you make. The pain that outside of your comfort zone conditions you to be more of who it is that you would like to be. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, pastors, teachers, coaches will put children into spots that will stretch them, that will teach them, that will help them exercise past what it is uh, that they are. Speaking of children, today is a special day. We have um, sitting with Pastor Josh, and there's so many of them, so we can't all sit with Pastor Josh. But this whole section over here is young families, and their children are taking notes, and they are writing down things. And, and so I want to, and there's some more. There's some more of the, the little ones around the, the stage. Would you all welcome them to the church um, this morning? I told them very specifically this morning, I said, listen, Pastor Josh loves you being in service. And he does. I love that you're here. I love that you ask questions. I love that you dance in the middle of the aisle and sing very, very, very loudly. I love that um, the children are around. And I told him this. I also said this. When you go to big church, you will see grandmas and grandpas and grandmas and grandpas love that you are in the service. And that sometimes you're a distraction, but we are glad that they are here, right? We want our youngest to grow up knowing, teenagers and children, we want you to know you are welcome here. You are loved, and we are glad that you are here. Our passage today starts in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. God tested Abraham, is what it said. That tested word there means to prove of substance. It does not mean to entice to do what is evil or wrong. It's a strange and unsettling story and it holds keys to living life with Jesus, to obeying God and to being more like Jesus in our lives. Let's read the text and then we'll unpack what it is that we can learn from it. Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice. That's a human sacrifice on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. And so Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, 
and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Verse 5, then Abraham said to the young men, these are people that work for him, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God would resurrect Isaac. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. So Isaac carries the wood up the mountain. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. And then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, son. Isaac said, The the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Verse 9, and when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. He bound or tied up his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, like he always does, here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything for him or to him. For I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. So today it is said... It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. This text has what we call rough edges. There are some parts of this story that feel uncomfortable. Some things about this story that in our modern listening sound wrong. It sounds as if God has done something out of character, that he has done something wrong. The first one is this concept of human sacrifice. It seems contradictory to God's character. While it was practiced, it was common practice in that region, God explicitly outlaws it in passages like Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 12 verse 31. God's people did not participate by God's blessing in human sacrifice. This single request followed by God's intervention is an anomaly. The request and the stopping of it should be seen as one action. We are uncomfortable with God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But what we should remember is that God did not allow it to happen. Doesn't necessarily make all of us comfortable, but it is reality. The second is that Isaac's obedience to someone who's seemingly about to harm him. In this story, what we read is about the concept of human sacrifice. But then we also read what appears to be or what somebody might consider an abusive relationship. It might seem like it is condoning staying in an abusive relationship. However, this is not the case. Abraham has no history of abuse towards Isaac. And this event is a unique test, a one and done. God does not condone the abuse of authority or to use your strength or your body to hurt another person under your protection. Nor does he require us to stay in danger. That's the reality of God's character. That's what the Bible teaches. The true framework of this story, the way in which we should frame it out and understand it, is that of the love of a father. We can see that in Abraham's actions towards Isaac, as well as God's provisions towards Abraham. While uncomfortable elements exist, understanding the story's intent is crucial. It's a test 
designed to reveal what Abraham is made of, to reveal to Abraham who he is. And by extension, we need to see this in ourselves and to understand this same concept of obedience in our lives. The, this central theme to Genesis chapter 22 is jarring obedience. It's jarring obedience. The story confronts this hard reality that God expects obedience and he, and he blesses it. The way the story begins is like cold water. It will wake you up. I think there are four characteristics to biblical obedience that we can see in this story. Four characteristics to the idea of obeying God and what it is that he has for us. I'm going to look at the first three quickly and then we'll slow down on the fourth one. The first one is obedience or recognition of authority. In our culture, we are conditioned to be self-reliant, to reject outside authority. And we do this for good reason or for valid reasons. Who does not know a story of abuse of power by parents, spouses, police, politicians, and even pastors? However, just because some misuse authority doesn't invalidate its importance. We are all people given to authority. We are all people under authority and have authority over other people. And we should treasure it if we are in such positions of influence and power. The answer, the solution to bad authority is not no authority It is good authority and right authority. Obedience involves submitting to a legitimate authority in our life. Who defines that authority for you? Could it be your parents or teachers, coaches, maybe bosses or spouses, church leaders? Remember, submitting to proper authority is one of the most Jesus-like characteristics that you can develop in your life. Is it not at Calvary that Jesus submits nevertheless Not my will, but your will, he says to the Father. The first characteristic of biblical obedience is recognizing godly authority in our lives. The second characteristic is immediate action. God spoke, Abraham obeyed. When dealing with good God-given authority, obedience should be immediate. Delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. We often talk about waiting for God's calling before acting. We're waiting for God to tell us something. But the reality is your waiting is actually just ignoring the commands of God. That God told us to love our enemies, to forgive, to give generously and sacrificially, to go and tell the world about Jesus. You're not waiting on instructions. You're disobeying a command. We ought to immediately act. God told Abraham, go and do this And early the next morning, Abraham got up and went and obeyed. Biblical obedience recognizes proper authority. It is immediate and it is trusting. This marker is intertwined in the first two. Biblical obedience requires trust even when we don't understand everything. I do not need to understand everything that is going on. If I were driving down the road and all of a sudden came upon a police officer with her lights on, stopped in the middle of the road. I don't need to know what she knows is up ahead before I obey and respect her authority. And I wait for her to to let me go around or, or to just stop in that place. That's what biblical be. And similarly, Isaac could not have grasped the situation, but trusted his father when he said, God will provide the lamb. It doesn't make sense to Isaac. He doesn't know, but he trusts his father. 
God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son, the one son through whom he would have more children than the stars. Through all the nations would be blessed. There's no way Abraham could have understood all of that. But he trusts God. Biblical obedience requires some level of trust. And that makes us vulnerable and exposed. We have to trust those who are in God-given positions of authority in our lives. Biblical obedience to godly authority is immediate and it is trusting. That's just the groundwork. Something I don't think we appreciate any longer. Am I right? In our world and in our culture, we no longer recognize any sort of authorities. Any. In any sort of position. And I know this is true of a lot of different people, but it's also very true of adults. Like, I know when we think of obedience, we are often talking about the children. Children, listen to me. Godly obedience to your parents. This is good. But... As adults, we find ourselves eventually getting into a position where we are the boss of every room that we walk in, right? And particularly, a lot of times in our culture, guys, you're the boss at work, you're the boss at home, you're the boss in whatever situation you go in. Pretty soon you look up and it's been 20 years before you've had a coach, a teacher, a boss, or anybody over you. And so we begin to think that the world revolves around us. And it does not. It does not. These are good biblical principles that teach us to be more and more like Jesus. I told you that those would be the first three, and we would slow down on the fourth. And the fourth one is this. Godly biblical obedience is sacrificial obedience. It's what I call costly faithfulness. You have to give up something. You have to sacrifice just a little bit of your own self-determination to obey God and godly authority. You have to sacrifice of your own timing to understand and to obey immediately. And, and, and the way that it says, I don't know everything. It's like the passage that I keep telling you is one of my very favorite passages. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what following Jesus is. That's what following God is. I don't understand everything. In fact, you don't need to understand everything. You want your God to know more than you. Right? So then you trust that God. But we are conditioned to snap back, to demand an answer, to demand understanding. And until I understand God, I won't follow him. That just logically doesn't make sense. You are always going to have an element of sacrificially obeying him. We spent some time last week talking about Abraham's adventurous obedience, right? We talked about this idea that God told Abraham one time. He said, Abraham, go. And Abraham, what? Do y'all remember? He went. He went. And there's a lot of that that we want to praise and celebrate and honor even. And I don't want to take anything away from Abraham in that regard. But a lot of us are sort of waiting on that sort of adventurous call. Like if God was to show up and give us some sort of real big adventure, God was to tell us to do something great. Like especially when you're young. If God says, hey, I want you to go and to uh, uh, plant a church in Seattle. There's a part of us that's like, yeah, let's go do that, right? You know, let's go do something like that. I want that sort of adventure to go and to help orphans in Mexico to start a nonprofit here in DFW to do something good and grand. We're waiting on God to give us this big adventure. And when he does, I'm ready to go. Right? We're all wired that way. When he calls us to be bosses or to have lots of money. Right? I've met people that say, I feel a calling in my life to be wealthy. I was like, we all do, brother. We all do. I feel a calling in my life to be rich. To be a busy, influential speaker. To be a respected author. 
to be famous. These are the things that we believe and we are waiting. We just feel sure that God has called us to do those adventurous obediences. And if God calls you to do those things, by all means, go and do it. Cash that check. Speak on that stage. Write that book. But what about the everyday, costly, ordinary obedience? What about obedience in which the upside is not so clear and the downside is extremely apparent? Where it's ordinary and it's not famous. The ordinary things like obey your parents. Serve humbly. Give sacrificially. What about these standards? Everyday obedience looks like this. It is regular. Everyday obedience is constant. It's over and over. It's a part of your routine. This could be setting your morning alarm clock 30 minutes early so you can get up and read your Bible. You don't want to. You don't feel like it. It's just a normal part of your day. You could get a little extra sleep, but you sacrifice it to know more about God. uh, Sacrificial faithfulness is regular. It's also unflashy. It's not... It's not in the limelight. Costly faithfulness isn't seen. Think of the dedicated deacons who provide vital support and help for our church. I had somebody one time, a lady complained to me in a church. She said, I don't even know the names of our deacons. That's what she said. And I said, praise God, that's what they're going for. That quiet, behind the scenes, constant service is a testimony for what God has called us to do and to be. To shun the spotlight. To stand off to the side. Jesus' followers don't crave recognition, but if they do, they they kill that. They serve quietly, not seeking titles or fame. They repeat the words of John the Baptist. I am not worthy to even untie his shoes. Make much of Jesus and less of me. Lift him up. Too often, Christianity is dominated by these personalities that want to make much of Jesus and hold on to his coattails. Want to lift him up so that they are seen. Costly obedience. It's constant. It's disciplined. And it's not flashy. It's also hard. Costly faithfulness is hard. It's easy to keep that little bit of extra money to skip a day of Bible study Or to make excuses about attending church with the family. Hear all the time about people that are like, oh, it's just so hard to get to church. Can we be real honest for a second? It starts at 930. (laughs) We have free coffee and there's something for your children to do. The pews are padded. The room is air conditioned and heated. It's not that hard. It's really not that hard. There's not even traffic. There might be the occasional very strong smell of natural gas. But besides that, (laughs) besides that, Abraham was asked to give up his most valuable treasure. And he was willing to do it. Here's the framework to help you identify areas of costly obedience. Because listen to this. God's not asking you to sacrifice your child. Obviously, he outlawed that. That's not good. But he is asking you to sacrifice, to costly obedience. He is calling you towards that high honor. And if he's not asking you to make that big sacrifice, then in what areas is he asking you to sacrifice? Let me ask you a couple of areas. The first one, what are the most precious things to us? Our time, our money, and our talent. In what ways is God asking you to sacrificially give of your time? 
Can you give one hour every couple of weeks to serve in your church and the next gen ministries to serve as a, as a greeter, to be kind, to help? Could you give up, you know, dad, could you give up one, watching live one of the sports teams that you follow? I know in DFW, we have like a bunch of them. We have all of the DFW teams, then we have our college teams and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you don't need to watch all of them live. I'm not saying that. I'm just suggesting. Maybe not. And maybe instead, you'll just go out and play with your kids. Maybe you'll give that up and never say anything about it. It's just, I'll catch up on that one later, right? I'll catch up on that one later. Maybe you will sacrifice just a little bit more of your time. Maybe you'll come home a little bit earlier, not try to get ahead at the office, but come home a little bit earlier just to spend time with your spouse, to sit down and ask him or her, how was your day? How did that go? How did that feel? Maybe you could sacrifice some of your time. Maybe you could sacrifice some of your money. Money and how we spend it speaks volumes about the way we walk with Jesus. My friend Luke Simmons says, most people give the three S's of giving. Most people give the three S's of giving, which means spontaneous, sporadic, and sparing. He encourages them to give the three P's of giving. Make it a priority, give a percentage, and make it progress. When's the last time you increased your regular giving? When's the last time you got a raise or, or some sort of bonus and you increased your regular giving? If you didn't miss a paycheck, you shouldn't miss an offering check. And some of you may feel very strongly right now, preacher, stop talking about my money. I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about God's money. We ought to sacrificially give. We ought to. Jesus gave everything. So we ought to sacrificially give. Is he calling you to sacrifice some of your time, sacrifice some of your money? Is he calling you to sacrifice some of your abilities? You all have unique skills. Are you giving any of them away in a pro bono sort of style? Could you tutor a child? Could you serve on a church committee? Could you use your hosting skills? Like you're just really good at making people feel comfortable. Could you use that for your Sunday school class, to have a party at your house or those sort of things, to invite your street, your neighbors over, to share with them what's going on in your church and what Jesus has done in your life? Can you sacrifice some of those things? It's often hard for us to sacrifice. Uh, it's really difficult for us to sacrifice and to give away what we get paid to do. In fact, we feel cheapened, but that's costly faithfulness. This story foreshadows Jesus, the obedient son, carrying the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain as Jesus carried the cross. He takes the penalty of humanity's sin on his shoulders. Jesus is the lamb that God the Father provided. We're broken people who have damaged our relationship with God. We need Jesus to save us, to make things right. No one can take the penalty of sin on themselves. We need Jesus to take that penalty on himself. And so the Bible says that if you will submit to God as the true authority in your life, if you will trust him, even though you don't understand everything about him, if you will lay down your own life to follow him, then you will be saved. If you're willing to do that, I invite you to come forward today and to make that commitment. In just a moment, everybody's going to be standing and singing and I'm going to be standing down here. There are other people who would love to just talk to you and share with you, answer any sort of questions you might have about that. Ultimately, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Every day, 
in non-flashy ways, just a little bit of sacrifice chasing after God. I'm very excited today that the TBM is here. You may have passed them in, uh, you passed their vehicles on both entrances or the main two entrances here. If you have served before with TBM, would you just lift up your hand so we can tell you how much we appreciate you? They're all across the room here. Show their appreciation. I love, love TBM and disaster relief. Anytime there is a disaster, you mark it down. Anytime there is a disaster, you will see those yellow hats. You will see the TBM. You will see DR out on the scene. It doesn't matter if it's a fire or a hurricane, tornado, a drought, any sort of flooding. They're there. And they're there faster than anyone else is there. Helping and serving and providing. And I love what they are doing. Uh, After the service, I want to encourage you to stop by one of their vehicles going out one of the services. They'll give you some information about it. I have served with DR and TBM over the years. I've been trained and certified both in Texas and recently in Arkansas. Like I said, I want you to stop by and grab those. Back uh, when Harvey just wrecked Houston, I went down there with a group of friends. I have a a picture here. It's going to be kind of hard to see, but... There's a group of friends and I, um, I'm there, the one with the white hat on. That's actually my face mask that's up on my bald head. And it was fun. We went down there to Houston and we spent a couple of days. I slept on the floor of a church um, for those days. And I learned how to play poker um, with those guys there at Disaster Relief. We didn't bet any money. We were just playing poker. It was a lot of fun. Uh, actually, it's the same trip that I somehow blew out a pair of my boots. For some reason, my boots, just the bottom, just came straight off the bottom. That's how hard we were working. And everywhere you looked, there was just chaos, just disaster. We would turn corners and see these neighborhoods that look just like neighborhoods in Flower Mound and Highland Village and, and, and Louisville. These beautiful homes that the streets were just covered in wreckage. Whether it was drywall or or carpet or furniture that had been destroyed by the flooding. And it was everywhere. And it was overwhelming. This huge need. And I'm just one person. Me and my friends, we worked all day pulling drywall. I think in in the handful of days that we were down there, we really only finished two houses. Houston's like what? Sometimes the fourth, sometimes the third largest city in the United States. And me and my friends, we did two houses. Massive need. Like very little help. I mean, I really didn't make any sort of difference. I didn't ever get to talk to any homeowners. I didn't talk to any lost people. I didn't get to share the gospel. I really didn't do that much at all. At least that's the way that I felt. I read recently that that... Uh, or that that year, due to the Harvey relief, the TBM made 25,925 contacts with people affected by the disaster. That we prepped 1.6 million meals for people in need. We distributed 5,592 Bibles and 265 people made professions of faith to follow Jesus Christ as their Savior. It was... From my point of view, 
from where I could see with my busted out boots. I had to go to Walmart and just buy some more, you know, from my busted out boots, tired, sleeping on the floor. I made absolutely no difference. Just tiny, small sacrifice. A small one that wasn't all that glorious that no one knew about. No one knew my name. No one knew anything that I did. And in any regard, we didn't make that huge impact. But collectively, through sacrificial obedience, through costly faithfulness, we changed the world for people. We did that. That went. They did that. That organized it. You did that as a Baptist church that funds TBM. We did this through small, regular, sacrificial, unflashy obedience. What is God calling you to do today? Because that's how it works. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning and all the ways that you have blessed us and continue to bless us. God, we do set aside just a few minutes to thank you for this group that we call TBM. We appreciate those who work, those who labor, those who give and sacrifice, who go, who stay, who see it all the way through. God, bless them. Bless the work of the TBM. May it multiply and grow and strengthen. God, bless this church for supporting such work. Bless those who go. Today, God, I pray for those who need to obey you, those who hear the the call to repent and believe, and I pray that they would. They would take that first small step out of their seat and they would take one more small step and one more and one more that they would ask what it means to follow you and that we would be able to show them. God, thank you for those who sacrifice. Thank you for those who give. Thank you for those who will be born again today. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Y'all stand together. We're gonna give you a moment to respond. If you need to trust Jesus as your savior, the altar is open. Come to the altar. If you want to join with this church, you can take steps in that direction. I'm up here. My wife's up here. Julie, BJ, Jeffrey, we'll be up here to answer any sort of questions and to be with you.